One image from growing up that sticks in my brain is from Super Bowl 27, when the Dallas Cowboys beat the Buffalo Bills 52 to 17. This was a momentous time in our family's life. As my dad was a lifelong Cowboys fan, we eagerly anticipated this game, and I remember watching the game and being so happy that we won. But the image in my head is not from one of the moments of glory. I don't think I can recall any other single moment in the game, but I can recall this one very clearly. It's the image of a 290-pound man wearing the classic Cowboys uniform with that big white jersey, running down the field, big 78 on his back. His name is Leon Lett. He had just recovered a fumble on his own 35-yard line, and he was five yards away from scoring. He's got the ball stretched out in celebration. But what he doesn't know is that speeding up the field behind him is the Buffalo Bills receiver, Don Beebe. And two yards from the end zone, Beebe comes and knocks the ball away. Leon Lett did not get the touchdown. The Cowboys did not go up by six touchdowns. This image came back to me this week as I read one of the verses from our passage. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. There was no honor for Leon Lett in the newcomer's home that night. And we can't even speak about what happened later that year in, when the Cowboys faced Miami. But this one little, this one little act of foolishness, it undid what, what his teammate had done in sacking the quarterback back at the 35-yard line. It undid what could have been an even more glorious victory, like dead flies in the perfumer's ointment. It gave off a stench to what should have been mop-up time in the game. Our passage this morning shows us two apparent, apparently contradictory pictures of wisdom. First, the preacher gives us a, an example of wisdom saving the day against a powerful king and powerful weapons, what seem like insurmountable odds. And we see that wisdom is powerful. But then we get the fly in the ointment. Wisdom is vulnerable. We see there at the end of chapter 9, one sinner destroys much good. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So wisdom is powerful, but wisdom is vulnerable. We're going to consider those two seemingly contradictory aspects of wisdom, and then we're going to spend some time at the end applying these things to our lives. So let's start by reading the passage. If you're using a Bible that you got from the church, whether it's on the back table or kids, one of the ones we've given you, you can turn to page 558. And today's reading is from chapter 9, verse 13, through chapter 10, verse 4. So listen to God's word from Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 9, verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. 
The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. The preacher begins this section with this example of wisdom that seemed great to him, he says. And it's a classic underdog story, or maybe a Cinderella story, if you prefer. The little city, sparsely populated, overcomes the great king, the great king who has great weapons. And it's all because of the wisdom of this poor, wise man. These are the stories that we like the best. We like to watch these kinds of movies. But of course, it's fun to watch the movie where the underdog wins. And usually, if you're, if you're watching the movie, the, the movie maker's kind of given you the, the hints throughout the, the movie of what's going to happen. You can, you can watch those movies with some certainty that I feel a little weird right now, but I know the good guys are going to come out on top. And we even like to go watch these movies again and again, right? You can watch Hoosiers over and over again. But if you're in the, in the real, life, real life underdog moment, it's not quite so pleasant. Real life underdogs, real life Cinderella's have to endure a lot of pain and uncertainty. And of course, it doesn't always turn out all right in the end. Sometimes they lose. Sometimes Prince Charming never shows up. And that's why it's fun to be the powerful juggernaut. It's fun to root for the team full of superstars that is favored to win by two touchdowns. This explains why there's so many Tampa Bay Bucks fans today, and there used to be so many New England Patriots fans a few years ago. In the example the preacher gives, he shows us that wisdom has a kind of power. He says it's better than might, but it does raise a question, do we really want the kind of power that comes through wisdom. Another way to say that, if you were faced with kind of a bald choice, do you want wisdom or do you want power? We'd probably mostly choose power. Would you rather be rich or poor? Would you rather be the boss or the employee? I mean, wouldn't we all prefer it if the people who kind of controlled society, the people who were in charge of Harvard and Yale and the news media, wouldn't we like it if they held our convictions and hired professors who believed the same way we do? Wouldn't we prefer it if the political party we supported was always in power? We like being in power. We'd like it if people who had our same theology controlled all the book publishing houses and so all the books in Christian bookstores were, were solid and not silly. See, in theory, it sounds great to say that wisdom is better than might, but being mighty is very appealing. So why should anyone choose wisdom? Why is wisdom better? If we look closely at the passage, we see a couple of specific advantages that wisdom has. See, one of these in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, the preacher says that wisdom is righteous. 
So he contrasts the man with a wise heart with the man with a foolish heart. Let me read that again. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's, fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. Now, the preacher doesn't elaborate much here. It's really more of an image than a, a full-fledged exposition of wisdom and foolishness. But he gives us a, a contrast between right and left. The commentator Derek Kidner notes that we in English have a word sinister, which comes from a Latin word for left. And Kidner goes on to explain that the right and left hands have always been widely viewed as lucky and unlucky, good and bad. In our Lord's figure of the sheep and goats, the two sides corresponded to the two contrasted verdicts. But there were also blessings of the right hand and of the left, differing in degree. The fool, then, inclines to the less valuable, the less good, and by the same token, to the positively wrong. We're dealing here with righteousness and unrighteousness. The wise person chooses what is right. His heart is inclined to what is righteous. The foolish is inclined to what is wrong. So one reason why wisdom is better, why wisdom is better than might, is because wisdom is righteous. Is that compelling to you? Is that a good reason to choose wisdom? Would you pursue wisdom and righteousness over power? In chapter 10, verse 4, we see another example of the advantage of wisdom. We see that wisdom knows how to respond when people sin against you in anger. We read that if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So here's the way wisdom is better. It helps you endure the anger of fools by responding calmly to an angry situation. You can diffuse this volatile and contentious situation. It seems to go right along with what we see in verse 17 of chapter 9, that wise words spoken in quiet are better than the loud ravings of a ruler among fools. So wisdom is righteous, and wisdom can bring a, a kind of peace to these explosive situations. That's a kind of power, isn't it? But it's a power that's exercised in the context of unpleasant situations. Pursuing righteousness when you're getting screamed at? This picture of wisdom, then, is, is more complicated than the underdog movie. We have to ask, would any of us naturally pursue this kind of wisdom instead of power? Do any of us aspire to be wise when we're getting sinned against by someone in authority over us? Do any of us just naturally respond quietly when getting yelled at? Do any of us naturally enjoy speaking out like this poor man in the city did when your wisdom is despised and when you're going to be forgotten? tomorrow. None of us want to be wise in that way. We like wisdom if it brings praise and honor, but wisdom and then being forgotten, wisdom and being yelled at. The power of wisdom is not the kind of power we typically think of. And to be honest, it's just not the kind of power that sinful people want. The power of wisdom is not the kind of power that we want in our sinful moments. 
But that's where the preacher starts. He starts with wisdom's power. The picture gets even more complicated when we look at verse 19, um, chapter 9, verse 18, and chapter 10, verse 1. Let me read those again. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So wisdom is powerful, but wisdom is also vulnerable. If you're a big brother or big sister, you know the vulnerability of your wisdom. You use your wisdom and your skill to build that awesome Lego tower, only to have your toddler monster brother or sister come and just smash it down, laughing all the way. All that hard work is gone in an instant. And we see this kind of thing happening in all kinds of areas of our lives. So we see foolish bosses run companies into the ground, even though these companies are full of hardworking and good employees. Or we see someone save and work for a lifetime, and then at the end, one foolish investment wipes it all away. We see a foolish word spoken in anger tear a gaping wound in a relationship that's taken years to build. Just a little sin destroys. A little foolishness undoes wisdom's work. Wisdom is vulnerable to being undone by foolishness. And we have to admit that foolishness comes naturally to all of us. To quote Derek Kidner again, he says, It takes far less to ruin something than to create it. This, incidentally, is part of the advantage enjoyed by evil and of its appeal to the vicious side of us. For to put it bluntly, as the preacher does, it is easier to make a stink than to create sweetness. Wisdom is vulnerable because sin and foolishness are so attractive and, and, uh, or, uh, to us and then they're destructive. We all know this to be true. We all know that we have this vicious side of us and it's easier to to make a stink than to create sweetness. I think we see the Apostle Paul applying this idea in his famous chapter on love. Let me read to you the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly use the words wisdom and folly here, but he does speak of the ability to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And he says that without love, all of this understanding, all of this faith, it's nothing. Sin is destructive. Failing to love with God's love undoes all kinds of other, what apparently is good spiritual work. And so it leaves us wondering, what good is this wisdom? This powerful wisdom involves a lot of weakness, doesn't it? This wisdom doesn't leave us feeling very secure in the world. So what are we to do? Well, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to lead you through six applications, six ways we can apply these kind of warring principles in our lives. Just to prepare you, some of these are going to be a little longer and some are going to be very short, so don't get concerned that there's six of them. 
What's the first way we can apply these warring ideas about wisdom? The first thing we can do is we can repent of foolishness. This will be our longest application. We should repent of foolishness. As we look at this passage, we can see lots of kinds of foolishness, either kind of described or implied, lots of reasons why we might need to repent. So one way we need to repent is to repent of the wrong ways that we pursue power. And we need to recognize that we can be pursuing power or trying to get power without being the CEO of a company or even having a lot of external signs of power. What I mean is that we can hate humility and vulnerability. We can try to rely on our own strength and savvy instead of God's provision. So we choose the way that seems likely to succeed even if it's not God's way or even if it involves some compromise. We need to repent also of being the loud ruler among fools. Even if you're not naturally a loud person, in anger or in harshness, you can seek to control or manipulate others around you. As the parent of young, child, young children, we, I think I feel especially prone to this foolishness. To fight foolishness with foolishness. Shouting gets quicker results than quiet words of wisdom. Paul says that when we fail to be gentle and patient, we fail to love our children, we're like clanging cymbals. We've chosen the foolish path. And a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. We also need to repent of our pride. In one way or another, we are all like the fool of chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Our hearts are inclined towards evil. In verse 3, the preacher says, Even when the fool walks in the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. The fool's way of life looks ridiculous to everyone but himself. He can't hide it. You can see him walking down the street and know he's a fool. But by the way he speaks, he's telling you he's a fool. We're often blind to the sinfulness of our own hearts and our own actions, aren't we? And even if we aren't completely blind, we often resist admitting the full truth of our folly. So it really helps to have people in your life who can point out your foolishness to you. Do you have those kinds of people? And if you do, are you listening to them or ignoring them? One way you can fight foolishness and repent of foolishness is by inviting people who love you to speak into your life, to critique you. This should be one of the great blessings of being in a good church with people who love the Lord and are striving to follow him. This should be a place where we're able to invite this kind of critique. Now, naturally, we try to hide our foolishness from each other in the church, right? We all come putting up our best face, and we sort of try to look like we've got things together, like, like, well, like we're not fools. But to really get the most out of a, a church is to work against that impulse, to confess the ways we're struggling, to confess the ways we're failing, to confess our foolishness, to ask for help and prayer. Who do you know in the church that can help you like this? And who are you helping? 
turn away from foolishness. Another way we need to repent is we need to repent of despising wisdom. We're all like the inhabitants of the city that was saved by the poor wise man. One day they're saved by his wisdom, and the next day they've forgotten him. They despise him. How easily we move on from the grace and wisdom of our Lord. I mean, one day we're full of gratitude for the ways he saved us. You know, something happens in our lives and we catch a glimpse of just kind of how close to the brink of destruction we've come. And in that moment, we're amazed by his forgiveness and his protection. We're full of gratitude. But the next day, we go back to our sinful habits. We despise the wisdom of Christ. We need to repent of despising the wisdom of Christ. This passage is here to warn us about how destructive folly is. Just a little bit of folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And by destruction, I don't just mean it'll make your life hard in the, in the time right now, but that it has eternal consequences. If we fail to repent of our foolishness, if we indulge it, if we go on in it, then we're rejecting the wisdom of Christ. Pride will destroy us. Lack of love will harden us. So we need to see the evil of our folly. It's not a joke. It's not something to toy around with. If we crack open the door for folly like an excited dog, it'll nose its way in. It'll take over our lives. So the first way we apply this passage is by repenting of our folly. The good news of the gospel that we're here to celebrate every week is that Jesus came to die for foolish people like us. Jesus is the all-powerful God, and yet he humbled himself and became a man. He had the authority to command legions of angels, but he was meek, and he submitted to the authority of evil men. And as you read the Passion Accounts, we see he did so with few words. He walked the path of wisdom for the sake of saving fools. And ultimately, he did submit himself to the destruction that folly brings and deserves. He was killed by those foolish, evil men. He did all of this to pay the price our sin deserves. In doing so, Jesus' wisdom overcomes folly. He brings life to the dead. Friends, isn't the wisdom of Jesus better than folly? Isn't the weakness of Jesus mightier than the might of this world? Repent of your foolishness and trust in Christ. That's the first and most important way to apply this text. Repent of our foolishness. Let's be a church where we rejoice in repentance and not in pride. If we're that kind of church, we will be a powerful picture of the wisdom of God. So let's repent of foolishness. The second way to apply this passage is to pursue humble righteousness. Pursue humble righteousness. Or we might call this righteousness in weakness. Again, remember the words of the wise. They're heard in quiet. And the calmness of the person in chapter 10, verse 4. Righteousness should lead us to be people who speak wise words in the right way. 
We don't have time to dive into everything that the scripture says about speaking wisely, but it says a lot. And it's worth just maybe putting a marker down in your notes to go back and reflect on some of those places where scripture speaks about speaking and what it reveals about our hearts. The preacher here commends humble and righteous speech. Does that describe you? Is the way that you talk to other people, is it marked by righteousness and humility? Pay careful attention here that it's not simply righteous content of our speech that's important, though it is. It's the manner of the speech that's also important. Wisdom spoken quietly in verse 17, that's what's better. It's calmness that lays the great offense to rest in verse 4. So righteous speech is righteous both in content and in its manner. So are you known for being gentle or for being harsh? This is very likely a place where we need others to help us. We need to have others close to us tell us, hey, that that was not a right way to speak. You were too harsh then. We're all like the fool of verse 3, like I said. The way we speak tells everybody around us that we are a fool, but we can't see it. So what do others say about the way that you speak? Have you asked them? It's easy to object that I only get loud or angry when the situation calls for it. But before we justify ourselves, we need to look at the scripture here. The preacher describes a shouting ruler among fools. He describes a shouting ruler sinning against somebody. In moments of weakness or attack, God calls us to be righteous. We point to these moments in our lives as explanations for why we got so loud and angry. I was right to do that. You think I was being an idiot? He was a jerk. I was a jerk back. So what, right? But the Lord means for these moments to be opportunities to display wisdom. We know that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. The Apostle Paul calls us to overcome evil with good. That's how wisdom's power works. Both Paul and Jesus are describing the kind of humble righteousness that the preacher commends here in Ecclesiastes. The wise man's heart inclines him to the right. But this righteousness is not something that comes natural to any of us. God has to work this kind of righteousness in us. It only grows in our hearts and lives as we see Jesus as we trust in Christ and as we pursue Christ, we pursue righteousness by pursuing Christ. So the more we know Jesus, the more we'll seek to be like him. And the more that we will be people who speak words of wisdom in quiet, even under attack. We should look like people who respond to shouting fools with quiet calm. We should pursue humble righteousness that's application number three number two number three is that we should beware of fools that's application number three beware of fools it's one thing to try to avoid being foolish yourself that's good but we also need to be warned against listening to fools and we need to do this because we've already seen a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor it doesn't take much to infect us 
What if your life of wisdom that you're so carefully trying to lead is, is turned upside down because you listen to the advice of a fool? We don't have to go far to find fools either. There are fools on our TVs and radios and in our social media feeds and the podcasts we listen to. We can think of some shouting, angry, foolish leaders who are in government or who were in government. Fools are everywhere. And you're probably living with some fools. This passage can help you identify fools. Does someone who you know act like power is better than wisdom? Do they speak as if the wisdom of the unknown and poor is to be despised? Do they speak words of wisdom? And how do they speak those righteous words? Are they quiet and calm, or is everything a life and death matter? Is it clear that they love righteousness? Are they trying to overcome evil with good? Are they loving? Does being around this person and listening to them, does it produce the fruit of righteousness in your own life? The influences that you hear, are they producing life-giving things in your life or, or destructive things? Do you see the evidence of folly in your life as you listen to them? We're never going to be able to avoid fools, and you might argue we shouldn't really try. I mean, to be evangelistic means to be around people in the world who say and do foolish things. We want to love them with the gospel. But we can be wise in how we listen to them and how we respond to them. Again, parents, how often have we fallen into the trap of responding to foolishness of our children with our own foolishness? That doesn't go well. We need to understand what foolishness is so we can respond with wisdom and righteousness. One area where we need to pay a special attention is to be watchful for fools who pretend to be wise. I think this is especially important for Christians today when there's so much Christian media that we can consume. So you can find your favorite Christian teachers on the radio or their podcast, their website, their books. And there's lots of good material out there. But one simple thing I would encourage you to do, a way to assess the wisdom of a, of a Christian teacher that you might want to listen to is to ask one simple question, what church are they a member of? Has this person followed Christ in the most basic way of submitting themselves to a local group of believers? And once you find out what church that person's a member of, look up their statement of faith. Is it orthodox? Does it teach the Bible? If you're listening to a Christian teacher and you can't figure out what church they're a member of, that's a red flag. At the very least, you should be able to figure out sort of who their board of directors is on their ministry. Are those guys, are those people uh, godly people? A godly teacher is going to be glad to tell you about the other godly people in their life that they're accountable to. So before you pick up a Christian book or podcast or listen to a Christian celebrity speak, ask this simple question. It's not going to guard you against everything, but it's a good place to start. I think it does guard us against the kind of celebrity culture in the church. As someone who grew up in church, I know it seems like we always want to trot out Christian athletes to speak at things, right? 
And we understand their, their fame gives them people uh, a certain amount of draw. People might want to listen to them. But it, I remember being at A&M and, and our church had the A&M quarterback come and give a little talk one day in a Sunday service. Like, I, I don't know why we should listen to this guy, but he's held up because he's, he's a quarterback and he says he believes in Jesus. We need to be more discerning than to, to listen to every Christian that's put on a pedestal. Beware of fools. Even beware of, of, of Christians saying that they're wise. Investigate a little. Another application, be careful with power. The, Christ, the, the preacher is clear that wisdom is better than might. Now that doesn't mean that power is sinful, but power is a little bit like money. Power can be used for good, but it's very tempting to abuse power. And if you're pursuing power for its own sake, you are not going to be encouraged to be humble and dependent on God and pursue righteousness. You're likely going to be tempted to compromise your principles to keep or gain power. And this can be a promotion at work, it can be political power, it can be any kind of power, even power in the church. This point goes hand in hand with the need to beware of fools. Foolish people are often addicted to power, and they're going to try to convince you that everything depends on the right people, probably them, remaining in power. So just tell me if this sounds familiar. This is the most important election of our lifetime. That's the talk of fools. Now, power itself is not evil. The right use of power can be a great blessing, but the abuse of power is especially destructive. So be careful with power. Number five, the fifth application. Love motivates wisdom. Notice in this first example, the wisdom of the poor wise man was used, why? So that he could get rich? It was used to save the city. The wise use their wisdom to serve others, but fools serve themselves. A wise use of power seeks to bless others with that power. The wise seek to bless others with their words. The wise man, and when he's getting shouted down by the foolish ruler, he seeks to bring calm and bring peace. One of the ways wisdom works is to help us understand what blessings we have so that we can use them for others. What have you received? What advantages has God given you? Use what you've been given to bless other people. Wisdom and love go hand in hand. The wise life is the life of service to others. And this leads us to our final application. We should live for God's approval. We should entrust ourselves to our faithful God. The preacher has been clear that wisdom is powerful and wisdom is vulnerable. I think there's an irony here that the more we pursue wisdom's power the more we will feel wisdom's vulnerability. So if you're living a life of of humble righteousness, a life of love, you're likely to be sensitive to your own sin, and you're likely to be open to being hurt by other people. We've already mentioned how a harsh word spoken in maybe a rash or quick way, how that can set a relationship back. I'm sure any of us who've, who've been in relationships, whether with a, a spouse or our children or just a good friend, how we think back to those, those harsh words we've said, and we see how destructive our foolishness was. 
Is there anything more heartbreaking than that? Than to sense the way your, your moment of folly brought destruction. A life devoted to, that, to wisdom is going to be sensitive to that. You'll need the gospel. And not only that, but we know that if we're living a life of, of humble righteousness to serve others, we're not be able, going to be able to control the way that people respond to our love. People that we love are sinners, and they're going to be prone to foolishness. And they may react poorly to our best efforts. A life devoted to serving others may appear especially vain. And that's why we must live for God's approval. It's so encouraging to know God knows your heart. He knows your successes and he knows your failures. He sees the times when you've pursued wisdom and then things seem to just blow up in your face. And the Lord has seen the times where your foolishness has been the cause of the blow up. By entrusting ourselves to him and and living for his approval, we we can rest in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that God is good and gracious, willing to forgive us if we come to him in repentance and faith. And we serve a God who can take what evil people do and he can turn it to good. Isn't that what we see in the life of Joseph and in the life of Jesus? Another way to put this is that only a life entrusted to God is safe from the destruction of folly. When Jesus rose from the dead, the love and power of God overcame the folly of this world. The destruction of folly can no longer touch Jesus. He is immune from the flies and the perfumer's ointment. In a world where sin reigns, in a world where a little folly destroys, Jesus is the only safe refuge for our souls. There's no other place to turn. Even if today the world hails you as a hero because you saved the day, tomorrow they will forget you and despise you. And so instead of seeking the world's approval, look to Christ crucified for sinners. The world considers the cross to be the greatest foolishness. It's the ultimate display of weakness. But as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. True wisdom, then, tells us not to put our hopes in this life. Jesus told us not to to lay up treasure for ourselves on this earth where everything deteriorates. The preacher tells us not to live for praise in this life, which is here today and gone tomorrow. He tells us not even to put our trust in wisdom, because a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. But live for God's approval. And God's approval comes by faith in Jesus Christ. I can't do any better for summing up this message than to read the words of the Apostle Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, because of your grace, we are in Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God for us. He is our righteousness. In him we are set apart. In him we've been redeemed. Father, we pray we would live our lives entrusting ourselves to him. I pray for your help to live together as a church, to fight foolishness together. To be humble enough to ask for help and admit the ways that we sinned. Father, I pray that we would not despise the weakness of wisdom. I pray that you would even show us the ways that we've responded in evil ways to foolishness. Bring conviction and then bring the grace of forgiveness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.